You're listening to the Fellowship on Broadway podcast from First Baptist Nashville. As Jason said, we pray that we would leave here changed by an encounter with you, that you would be made real to us today, and that we would know you better. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. When you think of people who don't like each other, who comes to mind? You might think Hatfields and McCoys, maybe Montagues and Capulets, maybe tech companies like Apple, Google, Amazon. What if I change the word? When you think of rivals, who do you think of? I think the word rival immediately makes us think of sports. So who are our big sports rivals? In the NFL, you have Dallas and Washington. In baseball, you have the Yankees and the Red Sox. In college, you have Ohio State and Michigan, maybe right under Belmont and Lipscomb. (laughs) Now, in the world of sports, you have rivalries between teams. But I think things get really good when you have rivalries between individual athletes. And I would argue that there's never been a better rivalry between individual athletes than the one between Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. There they are. I'm glad they could be here this morning. <laughs> so Magic Johnson, 32, he was the big city star. He was from Detroit. He went to play for the Los Angeles Lakers. Larry Bird, number 33, was from the small town of French Lick, Indiana. And despite playing for the Boston Celtics, he still maintained that small-town identity. Games between the Celtics and the Lakers were already big, but they were especially heated when Magic or Bird were on the floor. And the media played this up. They weren't just rivals. They were the biggest rivals in sports. So in 1986, the shoe brand Converse had an idea. To sell more shoes, they wanted to make a commercial that had both Larry Bird and Magic Johnson in the same commercial. And so the two players agreed to it, and there's this great story about Larry Bird refusing to film it in Los Angeles and Magic Johnson saying, okay, I'll go to French Lick, and we'll film it in French Lick, Indiana. So they had this two-day shoot, and over the two days, uh, Magic Johnson got to see the small-town lifestyle that Larry Bird lived in the off-season. So here's that commercial. Don't you all want to go buy shoes now? I've probably watched that 50 times this week. So Magic asked Bird about life on the farm. The two of them joked around some, and Bird showed Magic around his place. People who worked on that commercial were kind of astonished to see these two just kind of joking around and being fast friends. And even though they remained rivals on the basketball court, the two have remained friends to this day. The relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans in the time of the early church could have been included on our list of rivals. The history of the Samaritans goes back to the Assyrian conquest of North Israel 
in the 700s BC, when the Assyrians moved most of the people from northern Israel out into other parts of the empire, and moved people from other parts of the empire into northern Israel. And as these different groups of people married each other, Jewish people in the south increasingly saw them less and less as real Jews. Of course, the Samaritans didn't appreciate this, and a real tension existed between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. But then we read about the Samaritans in the Gospels, in instances where Jesus subverts what had become cultural norms by revealing both in word and in deed the fact that Samaritans and Jews were equal. You have the story of Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well. You have Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. And now we have the story of the conversion of Samaritans to Christianity. This challenges the typical way of thinking of the day, and it offers a glimpse of the kingdom of God. For the past two months, we've been studying the book of Acts, the last days of Jesus' ministry on earth, the first days of the church's ministry. Tim has printed out the thing in the back uh, that is really cool if you haven't checked it out yet. Uh, But we've seen as Jesus' disciples have helped the church grow, not just in number, but also geographically. We've talked about Jesus' charge to the disciples in Acts 1.8 as kind of the roadmap of the growth of the church. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we've seen the movement in Jerusalem. We've seen it grow to other parts of Judea. Now we're seeing it move into Samaria right before it moves to the ends of the earth. The real challenge of preaching in Samaria was that the Jewish people and the Samaritans had tons of religious disagreements. One of the things they disagreed on was the proper place of worship. The Jewish people believed the proper place to worship was in the temple in Jerusalem, in the south part of Israel. The Samaritans believed the proper place to worship was on Mount Gerizim in the north. The stoning of Stephen, which was preached on a couple of weeks ago, was the catalyst for the movement of the church out of Jerusalem and into Judea, away from the temple. It was now a life-or-death issue for those early Christians. They couldn't worship God in the temple. So I don't think it's an accident that the very next story in Scripture obscures that idea of the place to worship even more. Is it possible that it's okay to worship God outside the temple, even in Samaria? Aside from having a different place of worship, the Samaritans had their own idea about who God was and how God was going to be revealed. Like the Jewish people who spent generations anxiously awaiting the Messiah, the Samaritans also sought out a Savior, and they had a name for their Savior. The phrase that the Samaritans used for their supreme deity was the power of God that is called great. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but here we are. And so Philip went to Samaria to preach the gospel, and just as Pastor Frank taught us last week, uh, lo and behold, the Samaritans were receptive to his message. People were healed of unclean spirits and other ailments, and Jesus was proven to the Samaritan people to be the true power of God that is called great. There was just one problem. There was this man named Simon. The problem with Simon is that he was already calling himself the power of God that is called great. Simon was a magician, and he must have had some kind of talent because he had convinced the Samaritans that he was something special. They revered him as the highest god. 
Uh, I talked to Pastor Frank this morning, and he told me uh, something that I didn't find in my own study. Uh, the word that's used um, for the way they revered him and listened to him uh, could also be used to mean they were addicted to him. They were addicted to Simon and his, and his magic. And when we talk about magic in Scripture, we can talk about it in more than one way. On the one hand, there's the mention of magic that's a rejection of God and the way that God works in the world. Other times, the authors of Scripture could use the term magic not to describe something supernatural, but they could use it kind of in a dismissive way. Like, oh, don't worry about what they're doing over there. It's just magic. But it seems pretty clear to me that Simon specifically is noted as a magician in Acts to kind of put him at odds with Jesus. Because the miracles that Jesus and his disciples performed would have certainly been seen by some, maybe even dismissed as just magic. But what the inclusion of this story in Scripture and the conversion of the Samaritans from following Simon to following Jesus is meant to show us is that the power of Jesus is even greater than the power of the greatest magicians. But another way Scripture teaches us to look at magic is that it's about control. It's about controlling our circumstances, overcoming the problems that we face, and doing so on our own terms. This is antithetical to the gospel. Even Jesus always acted with God's power, or worked by God's power, but never tried to equate himself as God's power. If Christ had rejected the cross, if Christ had not died to defeat death for us all, his miracles would have been relegated to just magic tricks. But we're here today because we confess that the work Jesus did 2,000 years ago and continues to do today is more than mere magic. But I think sometimes we live our lives, we try to take control of our situations in ways that remove God from the equation. We take everything upon ourselves. We don't give it to God in prayer. We don't bring it before our brothers or our sisters in the church to seek their help. We act as though we have to go it alone as we shoulder the weight of our burdens by ourselves. So it was a big deal for the Samaritans to believe in Jesus. They had to abandon these preconceived notions they had about who the Messiah was supposed to be. They also had to abandon their trust in sorcery as a solution to their problems. Are there things today that we need to abandon? Things that keep us from trusting completely in God? When we fail to put our trust completely in God, we effectively make God nothing more than a magician. Only around for the spectacle, but absent in the day-to-day. -day. And that was Simon's big mistake. Okay, I love movies. I love big summer blockbusters. Not just any big summer blockbuster, Transformers, but definitely the good ones, Mission Impossible. Uh, and in the history of filmmaking, the first summer blockbuster was, by all accounts, Jaws in the summer of 1975. How many of you, as soon as I said Jaws, immediately started humming the theme in your head? Anybody? I think that's synonymous with the movie. So J.J. Abrams, who did not direct Jaws, was Steven Spielberg, but J.J. Abrams is one of the kings of blockbusters today. I think he's the only director who could possibly direct both a Star Trek and a Star Wars movie in the same decade, uniting the nerds. 
he did it, found a way. It was money. That was the way. Um, but J.J. Abrams did a TED Talk on some of his thoughts about filmmaking, and it's great. You should watch it sometime if you have any interest in that whatsoever. Um, but he talks about sort of what he thinks as he's making movies. And at one point in his TED Talk, J.J. Abrams talks about Jaws and asks why it's so great. And then he answers his own question. And he says, it's so great because it's not really a movie about a shark. Right? Mind blown. He says it's actually a movie about Roy Scheider's character, Police Chief Brody, trying to understand his place in the world and his place in the town of Amity, Maine. So Abrams says when he thinks about the real meat of Jaws, he thinks less about the scenes with sharks in them and thinks more about scenes like this. The rest of FOB is just going to be watching Jaws. <clears throat> that scene is so great. There's no shark. There's no da-na, da-na. It's just pure emotion. Abrams says that whenever somebody rips off a movie like Jaws, the reason the ripoff is so bad is because they always rip off the wrong thing. They always rip off the spectacle, not the thing that actually makes it great, not the scenes like this. It's not the spectacle that makes movies like this great. It's what the filmmaker uses the spectacle to point to. Miracles don't point to the miracles themselves, but to the work of the kingdom of God that's being done. When Jesus fed the 5,000, the point was not that God could multiply food. The point was that in the kingdom of God, no one goes without. If we're tasked with doing work for the kingdom, how do we ensure that no one goes without? I know I've failed at this. I can point at specific instances where I know I've failed. But that doesn't mean we quit trying. Scripture tells us that after Simon was baptized, he followed Philip around and watched as he performed all kinds of signs and miracles. And you'll have to forgive Simon, being a magician, for being attracted to the spectacle. Scripture tells us that Simon was amazed by the things that he saw. Kind of like Philip's hype guy, walking around with him, just shouting how great everything he was doing was. And I wouldn't blame Philip for liking to have him around. And up until this point, I think it's probably fair to say that Simon hasn't really done anything wrong. Sure, he had posed as a god to the Samaritans, but Philip challenged him, presented him with the gospel, and Simon became a follower of Jesus. But, and this is me guessing here, when Peter and John arrive in Samaria, I think Simon sees an opportunity. Simon had been following Philip around, but now that his bosses are in town, Simon wants a promotion from amazed convert to fellow apostle. Simon wants the status. This is the difference between the, the magician and the missionary. The missionary's motive is to glorify the power of God. The magician seeks glory for himself.
So at the core, Simon still just wants the spectacle. The problem with this is that focusing on the spectacle completely misses the point of the kingdom of God. Simon has political ambition here. He wants a different kind of power than the apostles have demonstrated. Simon really doesn't want to be their equal. He wants to be greater than them. He wants the power to lead. To be an apostle, the legal authority of decision-making for the early church. Simon wants control. So Simon offered to pay Peter and John for the ability to impart the Holy Spirit. But the problem here is that money is no good in the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is purely a gift. Philip healed people for free, but directed all the praise toward God. Even if the Holy Spirit could be bought or sold, it can't be used to bring glory to an individual. It can't be directed or manipulated by anyone. Rather, it's the Holy Spirit that directs us. The kingdom of God doesn't have room for personal gain. You can't do something for both personal gain and for the kingdom. You can't do something for both personal gain and for the kingdom. The church over history hasn't been terribly kind to Simon. This action, this attempting to purchase church office, it has a name in the English language. That word is simony. It's a great legacy. Um, one early church father, Irenaeus, even called Simon the father of all heresy in the church. That was, seems a little harsh, but... Um, you know, looking at Scripture, I don't think we have a lot of reason to believe that Simon's conversion was insincere. Because it's important to note that in Peter's rebuke of Simon, he's not saying that Simon isn't saved. And maybe we're missing the point about Simon if we look at, if we look at it as a question of was he or wasn't he saved. Simon's astonishment might not be the same as repentance, but it could be the first step toward repentance. Robert W. Wall, a professor of biblical studies at Seattle Pacific University, says that we should look at Simon as the prototype of the kind of temptation every new believer must resist. The spectacular is meant to draw us to God. In Acts, the typical response uh, to experiences of God is first amazement and then conversion. You can kind of follow that pattern in Acts. But Simon has his conversion and then he has his amazement. He seems more impressed by the spectacular than the spiritual. He puts the cart before the horse, so to speak. So then Peter says to Simon, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the chains of wickedness. Peter's response is very similar to God's warning the Israelites about idolatry in Deuteronomy 29, calling idols filthy and saying the sin itself is a root sprouting poisonous and bitter growth. Simon's sin is idolatry, but at the core, I don't think his idol was the stature that he could have achieved from being an apostle, or maybe even the money that he could have made from exploiting the power he thought he could gain. I think at the core, Simon's idol was that spectacle. We have to resist that temptation to just want the spectacles in life, rather than the things that the spectacles point to. 
because God only uses these spectacles to underscore something greater, which, if we're not seeing through the lens of the kingdom of God, could seem ordinary or mundane by comparison. It's like the story of Elijah on the mountain, not experiencing God in the spectacular things, the wind, the fire, the earthquake, but in the quiet. God uses the spectacle to underscore something even greater. When I was a junior in high school, our youth minister here was a man named Kevin Hall. We were at a retreat or a camp, something, having one of those mountaintop experiences people talk about. You know, those times that you feel closer to God than you feel on a regular day. It gets its name from Moses literally being on the mountain in the presence of God on Mount Sinai that we read about in Exodus. This was the original mountaintop experience. So we were having one of those experiences, and I remember Kevin telling us before we went home, you can't live on the mountaintop. And I distinctly remember turning to my friends and all of us saying to each other, that is the dumbest thing. The mountaintop is awesome. We want to live there forever. (laughs) But you know what? Kevin Hall was right. We can't live on the mountaintop. In fact, God even calls us off the mountaintop. God tells the Israelites, the beginning of Deuteronomy, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Resume your journey. I have set the land before you. God has set the land before us. We have kingdom work to do. Peter tells Simon to repent, and this is good news for us. This shows us that Simon's sin, Simon's missing the point, was not unpardonable. He wasn't beyond redemption because it's never too late. Repentance is not a once and for all moment that never needs repeating, even if our salvation is. But the Christian life is a journey. And that means we repent, we die to ourselves every single day. Last night I went to bed with the news of the shooting in El Paso, Texas, weighing heavy on me. This morning I woke up to the news of the shooting in Dayton, Ohio. Of course, I had this sermon on my mind, and it made me think about what I just said in a different way. When tragedy like this happens, a refrain we often hear repeated is our thoughts and prayers are with you. And we need to be praying constantly. We need to pray for our world, for our country, and for each other. But Simon's call to repentance is also our call to repentance. And God does not call us to repent and stand still. Prayer is the beginning of repentance. Prayer is the beginning of action. God calls us to the mountain, and then God calls us down from the mountain. God sets a path before us. For the church, for the people of the church around the country to refuse to allow prayer to lead them into action is a failure of imagination at best, and at worst, a failure of the church to be the church. The story of Simon serves as a warning for us. It shows us the dangers of attempting to use the kingdom of God for personal gain. But Peter's and Philip's examples also serve as encouragement for us and as a charge to us.
We're never beyond redemption. We worship a God who welcomes us with open arms every single time we turn away. And that repentance, that relationship we have with God, leads us into action. It leads us into action to transform this world, to usher in the kingdom of God on earth today, just as the church did 2,000 years ago, by refusing to view Samaritans as outsiders and opening their arms to them. Who or what are the Samaritans in our lives? Who or what do we need to learn to look at differently so we might join God in doing the work of the kingdom here on earth? May that be our prayer this morning and every day. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for calling us to the mountain. We thank you for embracing us every single time we turn away. God, we thank you for your spirit and the way it guides us. God, we thank you that it is a free gift because if we had to pay for it, none of us would be able to afford its worth. God, we pray that as we leave here today, that we would be guided by your spirit, that we would journey down from the mountaintop, and that we would continue to follow you in the path that you have set out for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Fellowship on Broadway is a worship service at First Baptist Church in downtown Nashville, and we'd love for you to join us on Sundays.